Welcome to Points of Departure, a podcast from the Arkansas Global Changemakers in coordination with KUAF Public Radio. Where we aim to place pressing social issues into global context. And bring communities together to find local solutions to global challenges. My name is Lawrence Hare, Associate Professor of History in the Fulbright College of Arts and Sciences. And I am Rogelio Garcia Contreras, Teaching Assistant Faculty in the Walton College of Business. And I'm Daniel Carruth, the producer and reporter for KUAF Public Radio. And we're your hosts for Points of Departure. On this episode of Points of Departure, we're going to Malawi. Uh, The products and the services that are being developed are being developed in the boardrooms without getting a proper understanding of the dynamics that are at play in the rural areas. Microfinance expert Richard Chongo gives a lesson on best practices for financial inclusion and helps Lawrence and Rogelio see a more equitable future through microfinancing. That's all coming up on Points of Departure, right after this break. Hi, my name is Nacho Dean. I'm a naturalist, a professional explorer. I'm currently living in Spain and I listen to Points of Departure. If you're new to listening to Points of Departure, you can catch archive episodes of our show online at KUAF.com. When you go there, you'll find information about the program with links and images and more information about the Arkansas Global Changemakers. That's online at KUAF.com slash podcast. And if you want to catch up on old episodes, you can always find Points of Departure in your podcast app. So hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Points of Departure. I'm Lawrence Hare. I'm so great to be with you again. In this third season of Points of Departure, we've been talking about the theme, the future of dot, dot, dot. And we've been talking about challenges that we face globally and locally the solutions that we use to solve them, and the context in which these solutions unfold. And we've been delighted to be joined by some terrific experts who've helped us think about how things are now and where things are going in these areas. We're joined today by a very special guest all the way from Malawi. Uh, First, let me introduce my colleague, Rogelio Garcia Contreras. Hello, Lawrence. Uh, I'm very excited to be here today. Uh, uh, As you were saying, we have uh, today Richard Chongo with us. He is the uh, director of the program manager of the uh, Opportunity International chapter in Malawi, a graduate from the Frankfurt School of Finance and Management, and a person that I, whose work I have followed for the last maybe, what, Richard, five, seven years, uh, um, always impressed by the work that he has done, how he has managed to bring Opportunity International in Malawi to many corners of the country and the the spirit and um, motivation that he has to uh, bring this opportunity and this concept of of financial inclusion f- in, in, into the into the country Malawi is is, uh, is a country in uh, southeastern Africa and um, 
you know, faces uh, tremendous challenges, but one aspect that can contribute to the improvement of these challenges is precisely this concept of financial inclusion, which maybe uh, it's it's uh, going to be a part of the conversation. But but uh, Richard, welcome, welcome to Points of Departure. Thank you so much. So Richard, why don't we start by just uh, sharing with our audience what is that you do? What is Opportunity International? So basically, we work with people that are living in poverty, people that are living in rural areas, people that are living in excluded areas to help uh, empower them and uh, support their journey towards sustainable livelihood options. We believe that people that have access to finance, they go through life in a better way than those who do not. Basically, we know that uh, in terms of people that are living in poverty, I would profile them in three in three categories, and that's so these are people that are living in very, very uh, extreme poverty. So basically, they lack basic consumption for their households. Uh, in terms of the programs that we do, we usually do at rapport graduation programs where we provide consumption support so that we can unlock the time that's locked for them when they're just looking for food for that, for that day. When we provide them with consumption support, and we unlock this time, we give them grants that now they can invest into sustainable enterprises. Usually we do an assessment, then they would, they would choose a type of asset that they would want to invest in. Mostly they choose livestock. Then we provide training on how to manage that, uh, that asset. But we also provide coaching and mentoring so that we can build their confidence as a people as they grow out of water poverty. The second category that we work with, these are now the people that uh, we, we call them they are poor but food secure. It means they have some time uh, that they can use to invest into sustainable livelihood options, only that they lack proper resources, proper technologies, or proper knowledge for them to invest into that. We, we usually use the strengthening of community-based financial organizations. Others would call them like the savings groups, VSLAs, like Village Savings and Loans Associations. So we want to help them to find savings options uh, where they can save in a group uh, when they mobilize together. Then they can also lend each other from the savings that they've mobilized uh, among themselves. But they also have a social fund, which also works as a, a micro-insurance in, uh, on, on their part. The last category that we work with, uh, we call them vulnerable to poverty. These are now the people that have established themselves in a, in a certain enterprise or a value chain. Usually these we work with smallholder farmers who are working in a, for example, soy bean value chain or groundnut value chain. These are the people that are on their upward trajectory out of poverty. But any shock that would be for them, then they would plunge back into extreme poverty. Richard, uh, thank you for, for that explanation. Just for context, do you have any idea of what is the percentage of the Malawian population that live in extreme poverty? So so far now we have about like 20 percent. 20, 20%. We we know that after poverty graduation programs are very expensive, but we, we have seen a lot of interest from the part of the government in promoting uh, services that now reach out to Atra uh, Poverty. And we also know that as we promote the services of interventions that strengthen community-based financial organizations, then we we'll reach out to more 
people that will now support in that in that area. I think it's very fascinating that you're targeting your programs for different different levels of poverty and financial security, and you have a very you have a very nuanced understanding of who fits in what category. I'm wondering if some of the clients that you've worked with have moved into different levels. Have you had have you had individuals that you, that maybe were at a at a more extreme state of poverty and then through your intervention were able to move into some of these other tiers or categories that you mentioned where you were able to put them on a more on a firmer financial footing later through other parts of your program? Yes. It's not necessarily that we're focusing on on the change in terms of an income level, but sometimes we focus so much on the resilience factors right. that the people would have to, to, to achieve. So we focus more on the resilience factors than just jumping on an income line. So we have seen that a lot of our clients have moved from one category into another from the interventions that we are providing. So in context of uh, what's happening in Africa, with all the challenges that many of the countries, the countries that surround Malawi, uh, with all these uh, political challenges, but also environmental challenges that the country is facing, how the region is uh, evolving and facing these these challenges. How do you see the future of the activities that you do through Opportunity International? Are you optimistic about the work that you're doing and how this turn into a significant change, or do you see any foreseeable challenge that you're preparing for? Yeah, it's so flexibility and innovation. Uh, these are the things that we, we, we believe in. We, we were faced with, with a challenge of COVID, for example, which really made us fail to physically meet with the people that we work with. And we know that in terms of our approach, would want to see the impact by having more of a high-touch type of intervention. But now the COVID pandemic made us now fail to manage or to achieve that level of high-touch with our program participants. But we use technology. In terms of our approach, we have worked with community structures. We we work with a model that we call the farmer or field support agents. So these are the F, uh, the FSAs are the people that are based in the communities, in the local structures. We work with them, those that have some kind of influence in the community. We bring them on board. We give them smartphones. The smartphones would have an application that has the training content, uh, would have also the, the management uh, functionality. So when we were unable to now move into those communities, we leveraged on the structures that we had created in the communities that we're working in to continue the interventions that we have. However, there are so many challenges beyond, beyond COVID. But we also understand that our presence in this, in this world is to make sure that we help the people that we're working with go through those challenges in a fairer and a smooth way. We know that access to us has different levels and different factors. One is the presence of the infrastructure in that area. So if there is no microfinance institution, if there is no bank in that area, people will not have access to finance. But the other side is now the access of knowledge. If there is a bank or a microfinance institution in that area, 
but people do not know how to work with this bank. If people do not know like what value they can get from this bank, then it becomes a bit of a challenge for them to benefit from these services. So our role is to help bring these together. Well, I want to ask about knowledge, if I can, uh, Richard. You uh, you learned the business of microfinance at the Frankfurt School of Finance and Management, <clears throat> and now you're you're there. You're doing the work. You're you know. So I'm wondering. Did you learn anything in application, in, in the actual encounter and, and the process of, of microfinance that maybe you weren't prepared for from your, from your education? Have you, if you were to go back, for example, to Frankfurt, what would you tell your professors about what you had learned working in Malawi? There are several issues. So one of them is that we understand that the cost of lending from the perspective of the lender differs which people that are now asking for financing, they might not understand. If you are a bank, you have like cheaper sources of funding because people are depositing money in their savings accounts. Then as a bank, they would use those deposits now to lend, which means the cost of lending becomes a bit bit cheaper. But if you go on the side of agrofinance institutions where they do not take deposits, the cost of lending becomes a bit expensive. On the, the same, in the same vein, we see that if you are a bank, the, the amount of investment that you make to reach out to a certain customer who would maybe borrow, for example, 200 million kwacha would be a bit different from the investment that maybe a microfinance institution would make. Because like from the banking side, maybe they would employ one loan officer. Of course, maybe the salaries would differ and such kind of things. But for a microfinance institution to lend the same amount of money, maybe they would have to employ 20 loan officers, they would have to buy maybe 20 motorcycles, they would have to print 20 sets of papers for people to sign, and they would have to work with different groups, making phone calls and such kind of things, which becomes a bit more cumbersome on the side of the uh, microfinance institution. However, we also see that these microfinance institutions are now the ones that are going deeper into the rural areas where most financial services are not there. Would you say it's fair because to say other, that they're that they're building relationships in these communities and and does that in these communities. and that and that increases the participation? Does it does it build trust on both sides, both for the community and for the lender? Yes. So the the, the more you your presence is in the in the rural areas, the better relationship that that you build. They have loan officers that are based in those in those communities. If we now um, compare with uh, like maybe the fully fresh commercial banks, maybe their presence would be a bit different. So if a, a borrower who is based in, in, in the rural area would now check the interest rates that a bank is charging, they would see that, that maybe the interest rate that a microfinance institution is charging would be a bit higher than what the bank is charging. So maybe a bank would charge, for example, maybe 20% per annum. But a microfinance institution maybe would charge like 46% per annum. But now the borrower would not understand why the difference. Because uh, what they see is that this this interest rate is lower and this interest rate right. is higher. Right. But now looking at these dynamics that the microfinance institutions would now face going into the deeper and hard to reach areas, you find that now the cost of lending becomes a bit higher than people that are now lending outside these, these areas. 
And in a way, it, it becomes higher because it also provides a different value, right? And this aspect of education and knowledge and advising, uh, because I remember visiting Malawi a uh, couple of times a few years ago, and it's a very challenging country, definitely a lack of infrastructure. And if you want to be an entrepreneur, if you want to open a business, it's not precisely the most uh, business-oriented country. So the role that microfinance institutions play at this level to, to take um, these small micro business owners through the process uh, to, to make to generate revenue and, 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 and make sure the business is profitable is not an easy task. Would you, would you agree? Can you, can you offer our audience a picture of what is the business infrastructure in Malawi, uh, Richard? True. I, I, I would agree. Um, so working in the in the rural areas becomes a bit a bit of a challenge, especially knowing that most businesses in these areas are informal, oh. and uh, working with very informal structures mm. becomes a bit challenging. Especially when you are on the other side as a bank or a microfinance institution, you are a formal institution. So, for example, most uh, I should say some of the banks that we're working with would not work with our, our savings groups because maybe the savings groups are not, are not registered. But registration also has its own processes, uh, registering with the Revenue Authority, registering with the Business Registration uh, Authorities, which we are, we are trying to promote that and penetrate into the rural areas, but it's not up to the levels where we are at now. Now, the microfinance institutions have devised ways on how they can work with these informal structures, uh, usually working on a group cohesion, building trust, and it becomes a bit, uh, a bit challenging on their part, but they also have to invest, as you have said, more in education to help them really understand what it means to borrow from a financial institution and pay back. Because most people would think that Lending is easy. It's cheap money because you just sign a form, they give you money and off you go. But they forget that after a month, the loan officer will come to you asking for his money back. Then it becomes a burden on your life. We've seen that most people would have borrowed from a financial institution with a grocery shop that was uh, almost full. But by the time that they are finishing repaying their loan, also the business is falling down because they did not prepare, they did not understand the purpose of getting that loan. So microfinance institutions also invest in knowledge sharing, training these people so that they really understand why should they get a loan, at what point should they get a loan, and really define a clear purpose of getting that loan and how they are going to repay. Points of Departure will continue right after this. Every day, Ozarks at Large brings you the news, music, and culture that make our corner of the world unique. You can hear live music performed inside the Furman Garner Performance Studio, sit in on conversations with community leaders, and hear reported stories about immigrant communities, the environment, and politics. Listen weekdays on 91.3 KUAF or search for Ozarks at Large in your podcast app. 
Richard, uh, micro lending exists in many different countries. Uh, not only Opportunity International, but many other organizations bring in this concept of financial inclusion into the world, which is really, you know, based on, on that work of Dr. Mohamed Yunus and his idea of shifting the financial world upside down, you know, by introducing these micro loans to the, the bottom of the pyramid, so to speak, uh, people that would not have access to a collateral, that would not have access to some uh, wealth to back up uh, the loan that they are requesting, right? And and he would say that this is that model is upside down, right? Because in order to access money, you need to have money, and that doesn't make sense. And and entrepreneurship exists at every level of the socioeconomic scale, and we should uh, provide access to credit, access to money, uh, funding for the the for this 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 group. Um, after working in the in the industry for a while, do you still believe in that concept? Do you think that this is this is uh, true? I mean, micro lending exists in the U.S. as much as it exists in Brazil or it exists in India or in Malawi. Do you see uh, that the model works equally in all uh, mm-hmm. uh, ecosystems, uh, or are there aspects that are fundamentally different that make the model a little bit more challenging? I think there might be some dynamics in terms of um, the differences and the, and the challenges. Like for example, in Malawi, like over 80% of the people in Malawi live in rural areas. And these people that are living in rural areas, they lack access to finance because most financial institutions think that uh, the cost of doing business in rural areas is high. But now the question is, if we believe that people should have access to finance, but these financial institutions are not there in those rural areas, and these rural areas, like they are, it's, it's a home of over 80% of people, then uh, when are we going to achieve this benefit? So when we go to start working with savings groups, we believe that this is one way of now uh, narrowing the gap of access to, to finance. Now, we have a bank that's in urban areas, uh, that's in urban area, but it's failing to go to, to a rural area. So what we're doing is we're going to create our own bank in that rural area. So we are going to, uh, to, to establish what we would call a village bank. A village bank, so maybe an umbrella term, we'll just call it a community-based financial organization. Have you identified but, specific communities where you want to see these banks established, or have you already made progress on this? We are working with 48,000 households. Wow. We have established 2,000, yeah, 2,400, uh, 2,400 uh, village banks. Oh, so wow. basically, these village banks would have savings options. They would have lending options. The first thing that we need to do is now to train them how do they run this village bank that they have, like how do they elect leaders? How do they buy shares as a form of savings? How do they lend each other? How do they repay and such kind of thing? The second thing, now we promote savings. How, how do we promote savings? First is training. And second is now to help them uh, run small scale income generating activities. And these small scale income generating activities would also help to understand that borrowing is not for consumption. We do not encourage 
these people right. to borrow for consumption. Because when they borrow for consumption, they would struggle to pay back. But they need to borrow and invest in their income generating activity. One thing that we focus on as an initial type of training is to build their hopes, their aspirations, or just to help them define the goals for their family and the goals for their businesses. So that all the financing needs would have to feed into the goals that they've set from the start. So when you say 2,400 banks going out into villages and you're con- you know, presumably continuing to expand, that raises a question about human capital on the lending side. Are, you, you not only need competent bankers, but you need bankers who understand the mission, who understand microfinance. Has that been a challenge? Have you, how are you building up that sort of um, uh, service base on the lending side to, to, to have enough people to go and, and establish banks? Are they coming from inside the, the villages? Or are, they coming, or are they coming from outside? We leverage the people that are coming from the communities where we are setting these uh, village banks. So uh, these people are already based in those in those areas. We so one like one one FSA like a field support agent in the community will help to set and support about ten village banks. The other thing I wanted to ask about is the emphasis that I see you place on. Uh, lending to women to to help women in rural poverty and and I know that's um, identified very clearly in the UN Sustainable Development Goals. But I wanted to hear your perspective on the impact of of lending to women in poverty. It's a very important topic. We see that I think in terms of like power relations, power dynamics, and uh, also just talking in general about gender equality and women empowerment, there are efforts that are being made or done in the space, but we see, like, from my experience, I've seen a lot of participation of women in these financial inclusion agenda or interventions. However, the challenge that I've seen is that this participation does not match the ownership or control of financial resources. So, for example, Mm. you would see that in in, in the village banks that we establish, about 90% of the members are women. But now when there is now that benefit from the, from the village bank, now it's the husband that's making the decision on how that financial resource should be used. It's a challenge that we are actively addressing uh, to make sure that we really promote gender transformative approaches in the communities. We have brought in interventions where we work with spouses. So if women are coming to the to participate in the financial inclusion interventions, at some point we tell them to invite their husbands, to invite their spouses, so that when we are setting the goals for the family or for the business, it shouldn't be that the husband should say, I didn't know. Why did you do this? Or I have uh, better control on the on the resources. But they should understand that. A family is a structure, is a unit. Both the husband and the wife, they have the same vision, working towards achieving the same goal for the empowerment of their family unit. We have seen that we are now increasing the levels of ownership and control of financial resources, even on the side of the women that we're working with. So we we want to see more participation of women 
more or equal resources uh, or equal ownership and control of resources by women as well. That's very interesting because it, it makes us think about the multidimensional impact that micro lending may have on a community, right? It's not only access to to capital to these lines of credit, but it's also all these other intangibles or all these other dynamics that exist within the family and within the community. Do you uh, at Opportunity International keep uh, any specific key performance indicators that are non-financial? And if you do, can you speak a little bit about them? Yes. We have uh, a KPIs in terms of the number of uh, women that uh, we are reaching out to and uh, also uh, household decision making. Uh, so is it just the man, is it just the woman, or both of them can make uh, can make decisions? We have uh, key performance indicators in terms of uh, uh, number of households reached and also the jobs that um, are being created. So when you are working with the groups and helping them to establish income generating activities, first it creates a job for themselves but as the businesses are growing, they can also recruit other people in the community. We're also contributing to the number of jobs that are being created. Excellent. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Well, Richard, uh, it has been a very, very interesting conversation. Thank you very much. Uh, I just want to see if you can comment a little bit, going back to uh, an aspect that Lawrence brought a few minutes ago in relation to what aspects of your education you would change if you knew what you know now about the work in the field, right? And what, you know, that how, how would you close that gap that exists sometimes between theory and practice? You were educated in Europe. You, you have, uh, say, a Western education, seen other, other parts of the world and work in Malawi. So what do you think uh, we in the West can learn from Malawi? What are the aspects that you think we could improve in our approach to development or microfinance or any aspects uh, that you are familiar with based on your experience? One thing that I've seen is that most financial institutions do not really understand the dynamics of rural inclusion, financial inclusion, promoting access to finance for rural areas. And uh, most times uh, the products and the services that are being developed are being developed in the boardrooms without getting a proper understanding of the dynamics that are at play in the rural areas. One of the things that we would want to see is to create like a, a value chain or a spectrum that would focus on the supplier and the one that is demanding the, the service and we have an intermediary, like someone who will facilitate the linkages between a financier and now the one who is demanding. So if we look at both the supply side of financial services and the demand side of financial services, how do we bring these people together? Because the understanding of the one demanding is different from the understanding of the one who is who is supplying the financial services. We have seen now uh, an increase in terms of uh, digital financial services. 
So these are agents in the communities who just use either a mobile phone or they, they would use a point of sale device. We see a, a lot of grant protection issues in the sense that um, maybe the people in the rural areas do not know how to keep safe the pin code of their, maybe for example, mobile wallet. And uh, a lot of people uh, have cried foul because maybe their money has been, has been stolen. Sometimes you find that maybe the owner of the grocery shop would say, you want to withdraw 3,000. I have 1,500 cash, but maybe you can get a packet of sugar. So it's like impasse buying. You are making someone get to buy something that she did not prepare to buy. So those are some of the current protection issues that maybe the education sector could focus on to make sure that they really see the benefit of these uh, digital financial services as well. Oh, thanks so much, Richard. I, th- I think our time is coming to an end. I just wanted to say a word of thanks so much to you for sharing your experience and your outstanding insights into the state and future of microfinance. Thank you, Richard, for your Thank participation. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Points of Departure. Your hosts are Rogelio Garcia Contreras and Lawrence Hare. I'm producer Daniel Carruth. Points of Departure is a podcast production of KUAF Public Radio and Arkansas Global Changemakers. For more information, you can go to KUAF.com.